Right, let me give you a little bit of uh, background. Always the first one in the series. It's good to have a bit of background. So Paul was traveling around the northeast corner of the Mediterranean. He would go from city to city. He would preach the gospel of Jesus, which is brand new. And some would be converted, usually not many. And the new converts would gather and he would disciple them. And then guess what he would do? Leave. There's a whole tone and tenor in New Testament Christianity of non-dependence on leaders. Obviously involvement and connection, but Paul, he would gather, he would set it up, and then he would entrust them to God and to each other. And he would say, I'm moving on, and he would do it again. He was doing that around the Mediterranean. He gets to the city of Thessalonica, uh, which was a very cool town. It was the capital of Macedonia. Even today, Thessaloniki is the second most important city in Greece. In those days, it was a key harbor in Rome to the east trading route. And it was very cosmopolitan. A whole melting pot of nationalities and uh, religions. It it would have felt like Gaithersburg in that regard. Highly cosmopolitan. And in keeping with its name, it was actually named after Alexander the Great's uh, half-sister um, was a woman's name. It, it, it was a city known uniquely in that time for empowerment of women. And there were women very prominent holding public positions of authority in that city, which was quite unlike other cities at the time. So it was a progressive city, a cool city. Think Portland, Oregon meets Gaithersburg, Maryland. And here's what happens when Paul comes to town. Now, this is from the book of Acts. Just a few verses explaining how monument, I'm sorry, not monument church, um, how this church in Thessalonica was birthed. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, and he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to raise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great number of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here to Thessalonica also. And Jason has received them into his home. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king. Jesus. And the people of the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the others, that would be money that they said, you are responsible for making sure that Paul and Silas don't continue this, uh, this, this behavior that's causing upheaval in the city. When they'd taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night, smuggled out of the city at night to Berea, obviously because things were so intense and so hot 
there was, they feared for their lives. Okay, so what do we know? Well, we know that Paul, was, Paul and Silas were in town for anything from three weeks to three months. Definitely three Sabbath days. If you read the comment, commentators on this, for various reasons, they think he was probably around for another couple of months. So anything from three weeks to three months. On the positive front, a good crew gathered. Di- ethnically diverse crew. There were Greeks, there were Jews, and there were some leading women, some influential people and some influential women. That's on the plus side. On the negative side, persecution hit right on the front end. And the founder and leader, who I would expect they were thinking was pretty important to the whole show, uh, had to flee by night. And I reckon they were probably left thinking, Paul, do you really love us? And then they thought, well, he'd lose his life if he stayed. But does he really love us? I, th- I think there'd have been a whole swirl of emotion going on there. So, again, read the commentaries. About a year later, Paul writes this letter to them to encourage them. Now, I didn't plan that we'd be looking at this passage with our first birthday in mind. But in God's uh, providence, we're looking here. This passage is about a church that's approximately a year old. They'd been going one year. Paul's writing to them. And this is what he says to them. We're going to read the first few verses, 1 to 10. Now, I don't know what you're expecting when you read chapter 1. Given the circumstances of persecution, leader having to flee after a couple of months... I'm expecting it's going to be pretty tenuous. I'm expecting they're in trouble. Let's find out. Verse 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul and Silvanus, that's uh, Silas' Latin name, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, that in the word in the original, by the way, means family members, brothers and sisters. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Archaea. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Archaea. But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Okay, that's just chapter one. I think we've just got to conclude that that's remarkable. They're one year in. They had a traumatic first year, about as traumatic as the first year of any church could have. They had it. Now, today we turn one-year-old, so let's imagine ourselves into their 
situation. If our journey had followed their journey, our journey would have gone something like this. January 2019, um, PJ and Ash and uh, a few other crazies start the church. By March 2019, all hell has broken loose. Persecutions hit. Gaithersburg, maybe even out of, out of uh, D.C. as well. Authorities are interested and not pleased with what's happening. Early congregation members are shunned by neighbors. Some lose their jobs. They become a, a group that's rejected by the wider community. Some of the early leadership team get hauled into some public kind of hearing, like we see on TV. It could be in Gaithersburg, it could be in DC, so part of the greater DC area. And a whole load of stuff goes down, and uh, they have to pay money as security to promise that we're going to stop doing what we're doing. And PJ and Ash are nowhere to be seen. They didn't show up at that hearing. And then word gets out that actually they were smuggled out of state in the night and they've had to go to the West Coast. And they're probably not coming back. That would be by March 2019. Then a year later, Paul writes this letter to them. Imagine someone, me, writing back to you, saying, hey, we're loving it here in California. <laughs> Hope you're all well. And then we write, write chapter one, this, this whole letter. Now, our first year has not been without challenges. Our birthing and first year has not been without challenges, but it, we have no challenges on the, the same scale as this, have we? And I think we can feel a real affinity with this community in Thessalonica. They're a year in, we're a year in. And uh, we can be heartened, and we can be provoked and instructed by some of the one-year-in strengths that they clearly have. There's some beautiful characteristics we've just read um, in these opening verses. In fact, let's do a bit of group work uh, together. Uh, what strengths, commendable strengths, commendable characteristics do you see in these first ten verses? Um, okay, you can see that there's a sermon series, not just a sermon, <laughs> there's a sermon series just in chapter one. Wouldn't it be great to take each of these commendable characteristics and do a whole sermon on each? Uh, we're not going to do that, and in fact, today I'm, I'm going to pick just one jewel in this crown of characteristics. Um, my initial notes were... 15 pages long, and I'd done about a half a page on each of those characteristics and others, and I thought somehow I'm going to get them in, all in. And then as I was preparing, my heart was just tugged really towards verse 3, and I thought I'd rather try and do a, a reasonable job on 1 than a very average job on 10. So let's go to verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, could you say work of faith? And labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, my, my mind, my heart was drawn to this one for several reasons, really. It's actually a bit of a life verse for me, this. When I think of several verses that have significantly shaped me, this would be up in the top three to five. Um, another reason is that Calvin 
John Calvin referred to this verse as a summary of Christianity, which is interesting. And then the third reason, really, if you, if you said what's one thing you would most wish for to be able to preach on the first year anniversary of Monument Church, I think it's this stuff. There's a few other things I'd love to preach on, and we'll get to those later in this series. But as we unpack this, I think you'll see the power blend that it is, and it's really just, just what I'd so wish, wish that, that our church keeps developing in. I think we're doing so well in it, and this is a word to encourage us, not correct us. Three key words in this verse would be work, labor, and steadfastness. So could you please say work, that, that section? And you say labor. You say steadfastness. Now come on, let's look serious and say it again. We want to do that as a church. We want to do that as a church in 2020 and for the next decades. And, oh yes, it sounds good, doesn't it? This is what I want for Monument Church. I really want it. I really want it. And then I think, oh my goodness, do I really want that? That sounds scary. It sounds good at first, but then it sounds scary. Because won't it lead to drivenness? Won't it lead to exhaustion and performance mentality? Legalism, burnout, disappointment. Won't it lead to guilt? We're being told to work and labor and keep working and laboring in a steadfast way. It sounds good on the front end, and then it sounds a bit scary. Won't it lead to those terrible things? The answer is yes, those three things would. But fortunately, that's not how the verse reads. It doesn't read. I remember before, before God, your work, your labor, and your steadfastness. The verse doesn't read, I remember before God, your work of gritted teeth, and your labor of white knuckles, and your steadfastness through grinding it out. How does it read? Remember before God your work of your work empowered by faith, your labor empowered by love, and your steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so the big story in this verse is actually the faith that produces the work, the, the love that produces the labor, and the hope that produces the steadfastness. Those are actually Faith, love, and hope, those are the words that we need to bold and underline. Because if we get those, then you get the work, the labor, and the steadfastness. That's why I love this. You've got the, you've got the, the productivity, but you've got the empowerment. Where does the empowerment come from? It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is clear that their, their faith and work and their labor of love and their steadfastness, it's all in the Lord Jesus and if we remain in the Lord Jesus, he's the source of all life and all joy and all power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in us and we are in Jesus. There's a whole glorious package, posse of strength and joy and love that we find uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's all in the Lord Jesus. But he says specifically, there's faith and there's love and there's hope that's fueling this work and this perseverance. So we're going to break this down a bit. And the uh, first thing we're going to ask is, what does the Bible teach about works? Because this, wor this word work and labor, they're, they're synonymous. The commentators say there's really, he's not differentiating really, uh, he's differentiating between faith and love as the, the power sources, but work and labor, well, they're pretty similar. 
So we've put, I put a little uh, bit of paper in the, uh, just in the, in the back of your uh, 1 Thessalonians journals. Would you like just to pull that out? Um, what does the Bible teach about works? I just want us to allow our, our eyes together to fall down the page. The first thing the Bible says about working for God is that works labor does not save us or keep us saved. So for those of us here who are considering becoming Christians, you're here today because you know people, you're coming along each week as you're exploring Christianity, key bit of intel for you is that becoming a Christian and staying a Christian, getting forgiven and saved by God and being, keeping being a Christian, it doesn't depend on you doing something in the past, now, or in the future. Works are not what makes us a Christian. Ephesians 2 is very clear of this. It's by grace we've been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So the first major thing that the Bible says about works is they're not the essence of what it means to be a Christian. Then the Bible goes on to say, but God does indeed have good works, labors, for us as his followers to do. So the very next verse, Ephesians 2.10, goes on to say, We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. So Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 starts off saying, Works don't save you, but then it ends off saying, But works will be things that someone who's saved do. What else do we see in the Bible? Well, Romans 16, Paul does several commendations for hard work. Titus 2, verse 14. It's a wonderful passage on grace there. But it speaks about how, how grace creates a people of God, people that are his very own, who are eager to do good things. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before men so that they may not hear about your beliefs, but see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. John 17, 4. Jesus said, Father, I've brought you glory by, com by doing things, completing the work you've given me to do. John 9, as long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yeah. He said, well, feed my sheep. If you love me, then do something. Respond by doing, by labor, by work. We could say that good works, good labors include spiritual disciplines such as evangelism, prayer, Bible reading, fellowship, committing to fellowship together, financial giving to the work of God, generosity, serving, uh, refraining from sin. Good works, not just doing things, they're not doing things. And doing your ministry in and through and beyond the church. And remember, we, we believe from Scripture that all of us involved in the dominion mandate to fill the, fill the earth and multiply, and that we're all in full-time ministry in one sense. So that would be our jobs, our vocations, our studies. We do it all as unto the Lord. It's all good works. Martin Luther says, summarizes, we're saved by grace alone, but not by grace that remains alone. So coming full circle, works don't save us. We're saved by faith, by grace through faith but grace and faith won't remain alone. Works will be added uh, to that. Dallas Willard quite brilliantly says, 
grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. So grace isn't don't try. Grace it is don't try and earn God's favor through works. We already have God's favor as a free gift. Grace is, not opposed, grace is opposed to earning. It's not opposed to effort. So, so far we know that works don't save us or keep us saved, but they are good and they are intended uh, for us to do. God intends that for us to do. And then importantly, note that the Bible speaks of good works, which we've read, and it also speaks of dead works. Hebrews 9. Good works and dead works. That's interesting, isn't it? Both are works. Both are reading the Bible. Both are not doing that sin. Both are laboring for the Lord, but one's good and one's dead. One is not appreciated by God. One is appreciated by God. Good and dead. So although we don't know the details yet, we, we know at this stage that good works consists of more than just doing the right thing. Good works in Scripture is more than doing the right thing. So what, what is good works? And well, the answer wonderfully is found here in 1 Thessalonians 1.3. It's works fueled by faith and labor fueled by love. And a steadfastness, a perseverance, fueled by hope in the Lord Jesus and all that he has for us in him and in the future in heaven. So all we're going to do for our remaining minutes together is unpack what does it look to, like to do work fueled by faith as opposed to just work fueled by gritted teeth. What does it look like to do labor fueled by love as opposed to labor fueled by white-knuckling it? And what does it look, look like to have perseverance fueled by hope in the Lord Jesus rather than fueled by just stickability, stick-at-itness? Because that's what we want, isn't it? We do want to have work, labor, and perseverance. We do want to be productive. But we want more than that. We want to be productive in the white, right way for the Lord. So fueled by faith, I'll just throw out some examples uh, from my life and some other hypothetical ones that, that may help you uh, understand this. Fueled by faith. So uh, you're a small group leader, and one of your small group is in hospital, and you're very busy, and you're tired, and your life is full of issues yourself, and you need to go and visit them in hospital. Have you got the picture? And someone says, why are you going to visit them? And you, whether you say this or think this, I'm not sure, but you say or think, well, I must, because I'm the small group leader. And I think section 8B of the small group leader's manual says when someone's sick, you must go and visit them. No, 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 don't say that, don't think that. That would be a, that would be a work, but it would be a dead work, because it's I must. I must do it. It's not fueled by faith, it's fueled by legislation. Section 8b says you should do it. That's work fueled by legislation. It's not work fueled by faith. Work fueled by faith says, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm tired and it's actually I'm struggling to fit this in. But you know, Jesus going to visit so-and-so in the hospital, I know it pleases you. I know you. I believe it pleases you. And Lord, I believe that even me at my 
lowest visiting someone in hospital, empowered by you, I can bring them love. I believe that. I believe that you're able to use me. I'm feeling like Jonah. I want to go to Tarshish. Tarshish, not to hospital, not to Nineveh. But I read how you use Jonah. He was a reluctant guy, but you, Lord, I believe. I, and I believe it's going to do me good. Because I know that when I, when I obey you and when I bless others, I reap what I sow. Well, I, I'm a person who believes, not really in the mood. But as I think about it, I believe, and I'm doing this by faith. I'm not doing just to get it over. I will look forward to getting home and being in bed. That's fine. But I'm doing it because I believe it pleases you. I believe that I can be a blessing, even if I'm only there for a few minutes. I believe that the little I can pray and encourage, and I believe that you'll repay me and you'll fill me. I believe. I'm doing it by faith. And what does the Bible teach us about faith? Does God love faith? He loves faith. Spurgeon said, faith, faith is, the, is the nerve that moves the arm of omnipotence. God loves faith. The Bible actually says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Um, making an effort with a work colleague. Why are you doing that? Well, I've got to be civil. I'm a Christian, you know, and I've got to protect the reputation of us Christians. No, 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 no. That's work produced by fear. Or, I don't know, just some weird corporate Christianity thing. You've got to protect the reputation of the church. It's a good thing to do, but that shouldn't be our fundamental motivation. Why are you making such an effort with your work colleague? Well, Lord, I believe that you will save him. And I believe the first and second commandment, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. He said, I'm doing it, Lord, because I love you and he's my neighbor. I'm doing it to please you and I believe that you can use little old me in helping draw him to you, however long it may take. I, I'm, I'm working in faith. No one is out of reach. I believe that, Lord. Some people think he's out of reach. I don't think he's out of reach because nothing is impossible with you. It's, it's work produced by faith. Uh, what about what we eat and what we drink? There's verses about that. Romans 14, 23 says, speaking about eating and drinking, anything that does not come from faith is sin. So if you eat that type of food, eat with faith. Don't eat it thinking, oh, I shouldn't be eating meat. They eat with faith. Or if you don't eat meat, don't eat meat with faith. But know why you're not doing that. Is it a spiritual reason or a health reason? Don't get confused between the two. Because otherwise you start saying that there are things in the Bible that aren't in the Bible. Drinking alcohol. What does the Bible teach about drinking alcohol? Does it say do not touch alcohol? No, it doesn't say that. Does it say touch it as much as you like? No, it doesn't say that. Does it say think, be thoughtful? Yes, it says be thoughtful about where and how you drink alcohol. So there's nuance here and there's maturity here. And, and to, to, to be able to drink alcohol or not drink alcohol or drink in that situation but not drink in that situation, to be able to do that with faith takes some thought and some looking at Scripture, th thinking, why am I doing it? Because if we don't do it, you'll either refrain out of some attitude that isn't really scriptural it's just because Christians don't. And that, that's on the slippery slope to legalism. But again, if you don't take any care at all, and you just drink with whoever you like, wh whenever you like, that's a slippery slope to licentiousness. Because the Bible says, be thoughtful. We don't want to stumble people. And there'll be situations where it's not appropriate and so on. 
the Bible neither forbids drinking alcohol nor endorses it unequivocally. And it's all in the context of do what you do with faith. So if you're not having it because you're with certain people, it's not all grumbling, oh, so they've got such weak faith, you know, or they're from the Middle East or whatever and they don't do it. Or it's, no, I'm doing this with absolute faith. So, so see what the Bible says about this. In another con- context, you do it with faith. The point is whatever we do, we need to do with faith. Not grumbling and grumpy. Um, no sex outside of heterosexual marriage. What do you think about that one? Well, why don't you have sex? Uh, you're, you know, you're single, you're not married. And someone says to you, yeah, why don't you have sex? Should you say, well, I can't. I'm a Christian. We're not allowed. <laughs> no. That's not work produced by faith. That's, 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 it's, that's a dead work. The issue is not just not having sex outside of marriage. The, the issue is not having sex outside of marriage with faith. I'm doing it, Lord, because I believe you know best. Oops, do I, underst- do I understand everything? No, I, I don't. But I know you know best. I've got some idea on it, even logically, to be fully joined physically, but not be fully joined commitments in other areas. It doesn't make logical sense. But Lord, my passion, I'm feeling the love here. And mm, Lord, I, don't, I, I believe you know better than me. So I'm not going to by faith. Why are you not doing it? Because I believe God's word and I believe he knows best. I believe the work produced by faith. A dead work is avoiding sin without faith. I think it's still better to avoid sin without faith than do sin because you don't have faith. But a good work is more than avoiding sin. It's avoiding sin with faith. Attending church and listening to the preaching. Hebrews 4 is good on this. There was a group who listened to the word of God and it says they didn't mix it with faith and it didn't profit them anything. And then in Hebrews 4, there was a group who heard the word of God and they did mix it with faith and it did profit them something. And that's great, isn't it? Why do we go to church? Why do we listen to preaching? Oh, it's him again. Oh no, he's back and it's him again. No, 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 no. Try and put that to the side. Try and put personalities to the side. It's, it's, Lord, I'm here for you and your word. And I believe if you used a donkey in the Old Testament to bring your word, you can use him. The guy with the funny accent. You can use him, that, the, the other chap. You can, you can use him, the, the, preach, the, the guy who's learning how to preach. Lord, I'm in faith that I can receive. I can, I can receive and mix it with faith. Because otherwise it becomes, oh, he's preaching. It, it, it just produces death, really, as opposed to love and faith and life. Tithes and offerings. Oh, now we've got gift Sundays. No, no, we do them by faith. God loves a cheerful giver. And I, I just want to say, we're doing these things. Hallelujah, let's keep doing them. Uh, we give because we know that if we reap, if we sow, we shall reap. We're not confused, not hoping for the best. We're not doing it begrudgingly. We're doing it in faith. We know in whom we have, we, we have believed. And um, parenting's quite difficult in this regard. We've got three children. They're, they're getting older now. But to parent by faith, not by fear, is quite something. Parent by faith in God's work in them, rather than parenting by fear in terms of your reputation as a parent. 
or fear of how they might mess up. How do we parent in faith? It's a work of faith. Lord, I know I'm their earthly father, but even more importantly, you are their heavenly father. And I feel I'm committed to them, but that is nothing like as committed to them as you, their heavenly. I'm in faith that you are at work in them. God, you are, you are their heavenly parent. And I'll do my part, Lord, but I won't do more than my part because you're doing your part. We're parenting by faith. We believe in the power of the gospel and I believe you are able to keep them. So I don't need to be a, a helicopter parent. I need to be responsible. But it, it helps me, not oh, gritting my teeth, parenting, parenting. God's got them. How's, how's your daughter doing? Well, I know that God's got her. How's your son doing? God's got him. I'm parenting by faith. It's tempting as a parent to parent by legislation, isn't it? We can't legislate the heart. We can legislate things that we do as a family. Totally. We're large and in charge as parents. Some activities, we can certainly legislate, that's appropriate, but ultimately we can't legislate the heart. So we never say, promise me that you will love Jesus today. Slighten <laughs> up, parent. <laughs> There's other ways to help them love Jesus. Rather say, hey, promise me that you'll remember how much Jesus loves you today. Remember how much Jesus loves you. Because remember, if they get that, they'll be drawn to love. Christian schooling can be another challenge. Do we Christian school by faith or Christian school by legislation? So I recently saw something, and I'm not critical on this. I just know how difficult it is as a parent as, and as a spiritual leader. But um, recently re read this. It was a club, a society in a Christian school. And um, they were asking the kids and the parents to sign. And part of the thing they were signing was, I promise to commit to the following. And then there was just a list of excellent things, in my opinion, Show up on time. Uh, give timeless apologies if you can't be there on time. When you're there, dial in. Uh, just, what, just excellent things. And then it got not so excellent. It got to, I promise to have a quiet time uh, with Jesus. I, I, I promise to spend regular time with Jesus. And I promise to glorify God in all that I do. This is for a little early teenager saying to them, do you promise to be part of this club? Do you promise to glorify God in all you do? Do you promise to spend regular time with Jesus? And, and when I read that second part, I didn't want to just burn the whole bit of paper, but I thought, I think that's slipping into work produced by legislation rather than work produced by faith or by love. I think it's good intention, but ill-advised. We need to trust the gospel uh, in that. Parenting, Christian schooling, leading a church. As a, those of us who are members, we, we've, we committed to certain things together. And that's good manners, that's commitment, that, that's right. But we don't say, do you commit and, and press on people's hearts? Because the heart doesn't respond to legislation. The heart responds to faith in Jesus, the love of God. And we want to really fuel all that we do with those things. Not easy fine lines. The Bible does speak about be disciplined. It does speak about making commitments, about working, about laboring, about being steadfast, but it's fueled by faith, love, and hope. So what about love? Well, 1 Corinthians 3, 
13.3, I'm sorry. We, we, we hear this at weddings, and it kind of goes over our heads. But listen to this. If I give all I possess to the poor, that's quite a good work and labor. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, that's full-on commitment, right? But have not love, I gain nothing. What Paul's saying is doing the right thing and saying the right thing without love, without a sense of God's love, and without love emanating out from us, no, freely we receive, freely we give. If there isn't love in play, it's a dead work. So we're seeing the power of this. Paul was saying to them, you're working and laboring and being steadfast, but it's fueled by faith and by love and by hope. He's saying that's so beneficial. You can, you can, you can be hyper-committed, but if there's not love and there's not faith, 1 Corinthians 13, 3 says it, you gain nothing. Now, this doesn't mean we always must feel the love. And if you don't feel the love, then don't do it. No. It doesn't mean that we're always in the mood. What it means is that our emotions, we must remember this, our emotions in 2020 are designed to travel with us in the passenger seat. They're not designed to be in the driver's seat. So love is not a feeling. You mustn't make love exclusively about, about feelings. However, love must be the motive. Even if you need to just swallow hard, take a step back, orientate yourself back to the gospel, love must be the motive. What does it mean, love must be the motive? It sounds nice, but what does it mean? Well, two verses that have helped me with this is love one another, love one another as I have loved you. If I'm struggling to love you, the answer is not, Peter, love them more. Love them more. It's love one another how? As you have loved me. So I just take a breath, step back. <laughs> oh, and drink in. Not how annoying they are. Or how difficult I find it is to love them. No, no, no. Love one another as I have loved you. Because I do want it to be love, labor motivated by love. Love one another as I have loved you. Let's just think again about how you have loved me. Selflessly, completely, you gave your life for me. You've accepted me. You stir yourself in the gospel of grace. You get filled up here. You go, oh. And then you look back at that person or that group of people and you'll find you are, are, your labor of loving them is empowered by the love of God. That's why we meet together. It's why we read the Bible. It's why we pray. It's why we do prayer and fasting. It's why we stop laboring, working, being steadfast, and we drink in week by week together. Hopefully daily as you read, as you pray. Not daily, frequently, I hope. Even for a, just for a few minutes. As we set ourselves apart, we get fueled. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. That's what the Bible says. No, it doesn't. Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And it's not, oh, I can never do that. I hear husbands say that. Oh, the bar's too high. I can never do that. It's like, stop being silly. That's not what the verse means. I mean, it means if you want to 
your love for your wife to grow, think about how Jesus loved for the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Let's think, let's talk, let's preach, let's meditate, let's pray, let's prophesy about how much Christ loves the church. The outworking will be a labor of love towards your wife that's fueled by the love of God. When we parent, back to parenting, as we train our kids, and Christian schooling, we're in this together, um, as we train our kids to be obedient, we don't use the book of Jonah like this. If you're disobedient, you'll be swallowed by a whale. That's not the message of Jonah. The message of Jonah is a really disobedient guy. God was kind enough to send a fish to swallow him, to get him, his life going in the right direction. And even though he was grumpy, God used him to save a city. God uses grumpy, disobedient children for his glory. Isn't he wonderful? And the kid goes, you're not saying stop being disobedient. You're saying, isn't he wonderful? And you'll find that that fuels and empowers. That's the big story. God uses people like Jonah. He used me. That just makes me want to obey. It doesn't make me want to obey. You say, unless you obey, you'll be swallowed by a fish. I, I think I'm going to carry a harpoon around. Um. <laughs> the heart doesn't respond to legislation. It responds to love. And um, prayer. How, how do we teach our kids to pray? God loves little children who pray. No, don't say that. I mean, it's absolutely true. God does love little children who pray. But what, what we should say is, God loves you. Whether you... He loves you unconditionally. You're saved by grace. Through faith, not by prayer or keeping praying. He loves you when you pray. He loves you when you don't pray. He loves you when you pray short prayers. Loves you when you pray long prayers. He'll love you if you never pray again. And you'll find that that just makes you want to pray. Makes I want to pray. I want to. Why do you go to church? Do you have to go to? Oh, I want to be with this one. I want to be with the, the ones that he saved. Finally, fueled by hope, fueled by faith, fueled by hope, uh, love, fueled by hope. When, I'm going to have to rush on this point. When the Bible speaks about hope, nine times out of ten, it's speaking about our eternal hope in heaven. The hope we have that the time we spend on earth is not the sum total of our existence. And the Bible teaches that hoping beyond the grave is completely liberating in this life. And the thinking is, obviously, that if I only have three score and ten years, that's 70, maybe 75... I sort out my cholesterol, maybe 78. Oh, but what happens if you die sooner? There's no guarantee you'll live to that. The thinking is you've really got to pack it all in. And if you're living for yourself, because death's the end, you've really got to, I mean, you've got to fill in, fit in all the pleasure and all the desires and all the happy things now. You've got to get money. You've got to go to the Bahamas. You've got to do whatever it is that, you know, makes you feel good if death is the cutoff point. But because death isn't the cutoff point, and it's not just not the cutoff point, the Bible teaches that thereon is way better. And it was quite wonderfully, uh, Ryan, Ryan Ward was taking the, um, the huddle just before the meeting, encouraging all those who were serving. And he was speaking about it, our eternal hope and how that inspires us 
to give up time on a Sunday morning and get here early and to serve because we're going to have many, many Sunday mornings for all eternity when we can sleep in as much as we like. Yet you get the idea. And he read from the, the last battle, C.S. Lewis, Narnia series, and he, he read all of their life in this world had only been the cover and title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. He was speaking about how the children have moved from this world to Narnia, moving from this world to heaven is the analogy. And it's just wonderful. He, C.S. Lewis correctly says, as the Bible teaches, that life on earth here is so short compared to all eternity. So if the width of this hall is all of eternity, your life is this thick, the cover and title page. That's the width of your life on earth. I know it seems like a long time. It's not. So we can afford to give that to Jesus. It's such a short time. We've got all of eternity. Ryan pointed us to Ecclesiastes 3.11. God has set eternity in the human heart. We think about eternity. And if we're clear that we have a hope that goes beyond the grave, we're motivated. Both Paul and Jesus spoke of heaven as a wonderful place. They called, both called it paradise. Jesus in Luke 23, uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, they speak of it as paradise. It's a wonderful place. There's no suffering in heaven. Are you suffering now? Where does your hope come from to get through the suffering? It comes from there will be a day, there will be an eternity when you will never suffer. The person who you love who's suffering for all eternity, if they're in Jesus in heaven, you will know them as a suffering-free person. It's wonderful. Many of you, when you, when you say to me, you, you tell me terrible things that are going on in your life, very often after commiserating with you, I'll just simply say, isn't heaven going to be wonderful? When we've been through bereavement and loss, isn't heaven going to be wonderful? Paul said to the Romans, your present suffering is not worth comparing with that. Are you living with disappointment and regret? Some of us are sitting here thinking that we're never going to get that opportunity back. Do you know that what the Bible teaches about heaven is that there's a full redemption somehow. We can't quite imagine how, but somehow every wrong will be right, righted. There's none of us who are going to sit in heaven for all eternity with regrets about life on earth. That's not fun. That's not heaven. God's somehow going to rework and redeem and restore for everything. There'll be no disappointment, no regret. We'll see God somehow work backwards and infuse things with his love. I don't know how he's going to do it, but there's a thorough redemption coming. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Isn't that great? I'm so glad. He's busy. He's ready for us. He's thoughtful about us coming to heaven. Paul told the Philippians that it is far better than this life. That it's far better. Martin Luther said, there are only two days on my calendar. As you're planning 2020, maybe write this in. There are only two days on my calendar today and that day, that great day. Well, we welcomed into heaven. C.S. Lewis said, it's those who think most about the next life who are most fruitful for God in this life. That great theologian, Maximus Meridius, what we do today echoes in eternity. He didn't know that he was speaking great Bible truth 
and that movie Gladiator. It's true. <laughs> Friends, the hope of heaven enables us to persevere and enables us to work and enables us to labor because death is not the end. It's actually just the end of the beginning. All eternity with Jesus. Faith, love, and hope fueling work, labor, and perseverance. This church was one year in, and Paul was saying, somehow, you've got that. You're productive, but it's infused. It's all in Jesus and infused with faith, hope, and love. And uh, I think God's helped us with that over the last year. I feel that. I don't see us white-knuckling it, gritting teeth, stickability. Well, I see those things, but it's infused with faith, love, and hope. And I pray that 2020 and the rest of our monument journey together will be productive, but infused by love, faith, and hope. Amen.